Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you. Thanks for gathering here this morning. And really do thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie. And it's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors uh, here at Crosspoint. And for those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church uh, into your living room, your dining room, wherever you, you are. So thanks for inviting us into those spaces. Family, we get the opportunity that this morning to uh, both continue, but also to conclude this series. Uh, we've been looking at it over the last couple months on various parables of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of Luke, and I'll tell you what we're going to be in in a moment, but uh, I want to encourage you as well, like next week starts Holy Week, and so Palm Sunday will be next week, and then this journey toward Good Friday and Easter, and so I just encourage you to be uh, praying through it, like who can you uh, invite to join us for one of our services, and seeing how all of those things are so integral to one another, like to just take one out of the mix, like we lose the whole story. And so next week will be a very just key week in the life of the church as we journey together through Holy Week. And so there's some invite cards and information. Um, It's both on our website, but there's some printed cards out at the connections table you can grab on your way out this morning. But if you would join me in this prayer throughout the parables, there's this theme of Lord, give us ears to hear, right? Give us eyes to see, and that'll come up again even this morning. So this short prayer for illumination. You don't need to hear my thoughts, my opinions on things. Like, we need to hear from God. We need the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and our hearts and to shine the light of the gospel, all right? To to shine and to point out Jesus more fully, uh, to see his beauty um, in just new and fresh ways this morning. And so you'll see the words on the screen. Let's pray this aloud together. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So church, this morning, as we yeah, continue but also conclude this series, we're going to be in this parable that's referred to as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And so I want you to have the scriptures in front of you. There's a number of different ways to do that. There are pews in the Bible, or Bibles in the pews, uh, pews in the Bible. Anyway, I can't talk, but Bibles in the pews this morning, you can grab uh, one of those. If you don't have a Bible, you can take that one home uh, with you. You can turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 19 through 31. You can also scan the QR code there in the pew, and that'll bring up uh, the sermon notes that you can click on. The text will be there. There's space to to take notes, to follow along. If there's maybe a quote that's up on the, the screen and you're like trying to feverishly write that down, uh, it's all there. So you can just save your hand the, the trouble there. Um, or as always, you can go to thisiscp.church to find that as well. So let me go ahead and read this, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke chapter 16. And as I read this, I think you will see pretty quickly that there is a heaviness about this particular text. Uh, There is tremendous beauty in this. Um, But there are things that I think will be difficult and hard for us to sort of process. And yet if we dig in and ask the spirit to be with us, there are there are things in here I think that we will leave today, despite what at, on the surface will feel like, man, this is, this is difficult, this is hard stuff, that will actually leave us feeling incredibly encouraged and loved by the God of the universe if we understand it. And so here's the parable that Jesus tells. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, even the dogs came and they licked his sores. And the poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So this is God's word for us, his holy, inerrant word. And as you heard that read, right, um, it's going to be uh, a topic that gets us into this, this discussion, this, this theological idea of like heaven and hell and judgment and the afterlife and eternity and all of those things. And so even this week, I was like preparing for this and I was like, man, there's a lot of parables. Who picked this one? And I'm like, oh yeah, I did. All right. So, um, uh, my own fault for, for that. But in all seriousness, there is a richness and a beauty to this, but it'll take us some, some work to get there. And then to do this, I want to look at in this parable, what starts out as a, a contrast in identities that we'll look at. Then we will look at the verses that speak of this chasm of heaven and hell and the realities of the afterlife, this chasm that goes on for all of eternity. And conclude by looking at the costliness of love and what this text, where oftentimes people will say, I believe in a God of love and therefore I can't actually believe in the realities of hell. What this text actually shows us is that if you actually understand the reality of hell and believe in that, you will actually have a deeper appreciation for the love of God, as counterintuitive as that may seem. And so that's where we will go. But let's look initially at this contrast. Jesus tells this parable, and it's helpful to remember a context. He's speaking to a group of people, a lot of religious leaders and a lot of people who have tremendous wealth, it tells us. And he starts to lay this out. And so here are some of the words that are described, all right, that describe the two main characters that we're introduced to. The first is a rich man. Now look at the description in verse 19. There was a rich man, all right, but it's going to tell us, Jesus is going to tell us more than simply that descriptor, all right? He could have left it at that, but he's like, hey, let me let me define this a bit. Let me nuance this. Let me give you a little bit more insight into what kind of level this guy was playing at. All right. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple. Now, we may think nothing of that. Um, if you happen to be wearing purple here today, we're all like, ooh, you are next level wealthy, right? Now, that's not necessarily what we're, we're thinking. All right. But back then, all right, to actually have the dye to be able to put something, make something purple was incredibly expensive. It was incredibly costly. It was incredibly valuable and rare. And what we learn about this rich man is not just 
wealthy. He's got a level of wealth that every day he's clothed in purple. And it wasn't just everyday sort of garments. It's fine linen, it tells us. And this man in his purple fine linen garments, all right, with this great wealth, it's not that he just had a feast every now and again when there was a celebration, there was maybe a birthday party, or there was some you know, religious ceremony that was happening, though it included that. It tells us these words, did you notice it? Who feasted, not every once in a while, but he feasted sumptuously every single day. And so Jesus, in telling the story, says, okay, so here's the, the first person. Picture this. It's a man with a level of wealth that he could afford purple, not just for you know one outfit, but literally all of his fine linen, all of his clothing is purple. I mean, every day people would have looked at him and it would have been this signifier of like, I have a level of wealth that you could only dream of. That's what that communicated. It was a big status symbol. And then this man wouldn't just have normal meals. He would feast sumptuously every single day. So that's character number one. Now, look with me at verse 20. We get a description of another man. At his gate, at the gate of the rich man, laid a poor man named Lazarus. And so just to start there, already we're hearing that this man had a level of poverty that he even couldn't get himself there. He was laid there at this gate. That there was this, as we talk about this chasm in a moment, even in this reality, right? There was a chasm that wouldn't allow, it like kept the rich man with all his stuff and all his people. And then on the other side of the gate, there was this poor man who was laid there day after day. And his name was Lazarus. And he's covered with sores. And the language here is like almost like these open sores, these wounds. This would have made him ceremonially unclean to the Jewish people. And so even people had to avoid him for all of those reasons. And there's all these things going on. And it says he desired to be fed. So you got the man who's feasting sumptuously every day and then dressed in purple, fine linens, all of it. And then just outside of the gate that surrounds his home. There is this man who is laid there, who likely had just rags for clothing. He's got open sores. There's just um, a destituteness that he has. And it says he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And this could be a number of things. Culturally, I mean, just at one level, we would all get this, meaning like, hey, if there's a big feast, there's likely going to be some leftovers, right? And so at one level, it's like, yeah, the man is desiring for that. Would there maybe be some scraps, something left over from the table? Maybe somebody would bring that to him. And that certainly could be the case. But there was another thing even culturally that would happen in a time and a place where they wouldn't have had like place settings with napkins or, you know, whether they're, you know, paper napkins or like cloth or whatever, like people to literally clean their hands, what they would do is they would get a slice of bread, all right? And they would use that to wipe the like remnants of food or their hands that were sticky or whatever it was or some sort of grime. And they would use a piece of bread and they would wipe that across the palms of their hand. And then they would throw that and they would discard it. And so that imagery even is telling us a bit, this man desired for that, But that's likely what's going on. He's got a level of poverty and of hunger, and he's so overlooked and he's so neglected, he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And then moreover, we get this description, even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
And if you're like, oh, isn't that sweet? Like, we just love dogs, don't we? I mean, he, you know, the, the rich man might have neglected him, but not those dogs, man. They'll come. No, this is not the image. Like, get your pet out of your head for a moment, all right? I'm not knocking your pet. I love my dog. But this, this is not what this is communicating. These are these open wounds, and it's just this level of a man who can't even push off the, these dogs that have no home. They're wandering the streets. They're scavengers, and they're licking this man's open wounds in sores. I mean, it's a picture of ultimate just dejection. Like there couldn't be a bigger contrast between this rich man and this poor man. But then it tells us that they both encountered something similar. It says they both actually died. There was a rich man, or it tells us here, sorry, verse 22, the poor man died. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man, Jesus tells us, also died and was buried. But even here, it's interesting, the description that's given of the rich man. He gets a proper burial. Friends and family likely would have gathered. He would have been honored. He would have been celebrated. He would have had a proper funeral service. He would have been buried in a way that was honoring to who he was in this, this lifetime. And yet, no description is given of the poor man. Likely, what would have taken place for somebody like that is that somebody eventually would have noticed that he had died, There was nobody to call for a funeral, nobody to say kind words, nothing really to honor or to celebrate. And what they would do with people that were in that situation is they would literally drag the body outside of the city and there on a trash heap, it likely is where he went. And yet, it tells us, as we'll get into more in a moment, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So do you see the picture that Jesus is painting? The rich man and the poor man. One in fine linen and purple and sumptuous feasts. And even when he dies, man, the town celebrates. People come, there's a burial. And then there was this man outside of this, the gate who was overlooked, who couldn't even get pieces of bread that people had used to wipe their hands with. And nobody really sees him. Nobody really knows him. And he dies. And he doesn't get a proper burial. No funeral. No one coming to pay their respects. And yet, in that contrast, let me ask you something. Did you notice the biggest difference in the descriptions? And it's not between the clothing they wore or the food that one had and the other did not. It's not where they, they lived. It's not their, you know, the level of wealth or the lack of wealth that they had. What is so fascinating here is that in this particular story, it's the only account where Jesus in a parable gives one of the characters a name. We're told there's Lazarus, the poor man, and then there's the rich man. And friends, what this is getting us to consider is in this story, Jesus is saying there's a contrast in identities. And yes, it can be at first glance, right, about kind of the superficial stuff, the things that we would immediately notice about who's dressed one way and who doesn't have nice clothes or nice things or nice food and and all of that. Right? But what Jesus is pressing at, and remember the context that he's, he's teaching to, and remember that his word is not just for people 2,000 years ago, but it's for us right here this morning. There's a question about naming. There's a question about identity. And what this is saying is the rich man all right, built his identity upon his wealth. But Lazarus, even though he had no possessions, he had nobody to care for him, he had barely enough food to survive, he had open sores that the dogs came and attended to. I mean, this man who was completely destitute. Guess what Lazarus means? Lazarus means God helps. 
And there's something rock solid about his identity, despite the fact that none of us would wish that we were that man, right? On the surface, right? I don't want that sort of life. I'm trying to avoid that sort of life. And yet, though the circumstances of his life were horrific, there's a reality about who he is and what we will see as he's ushered to Abraham's side and he's in this place of the presence of God, right? It is coming to fruition what his name means. It means God helps. And Jesus is saying, you can either have an identity that is surrendered to the God of the universe who will help you extend his grace, care for you, or... You can live it up in this life and you can go for like the rich man, this acquisition of wealth and an identity built on that. Now, as we talked about a few weeks ago in another parable where Jesus talks about wealth, the Bible, hear me on this, is not anti-wealth. Sometimes people, again, will be like, yep, money's the root of all evil. Read your Bible. It's not what it says, all right? It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When there's that over-pursuit, that over-desire, And yet, there is a reason Jesus talks about money. There's a reason he picked this man to characterize him as a rich man, not because he's anti-wealthy, anti-wealth, but he does know there's a way, there's a sinister way that money gets a hold of our hearts. And if we think for a moment, wow, hope these wealthy people, whoever they are, hear this today, he's talking to all of us. The level of wealth that we possess, the thing that we got here in a vehicle today, right? I mean, all of these things, like somehow God has provided enough. Like, so there is at that level. And what he's saying is the rich man built his entire identity. His entire identity was tied to something that would deteriorate, that would go away. And the same is true for us. If we build it on riches, all right, it eventually goes away. If we build it on people liking us, what happens if somebody doesn't like us? If we build it on staying in good shape and looking a certain way, right? Nothing wrong with working hard. Nothing wrong with acquiring wealth. Nothing wrong with stewarding your body well. But eventually, it all decays, right? That home you're trying to build or whatever, eventually that thing begins to decay and it begins to crumble. And so unless your identity is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus is saying, hey, I care enough about you to let you know that it will not last. One of my favorite sports movies, um, even as a Michigan fan, I can appreciate this particular film um, called Rudy. You guys remember the movie Rudy, some of you, right? And if you know this story, you know that there's this brother in this particular family, um, and they, the whole family, they are diehard Notre Dame fans, all right? So we won't hold that against them, but they're diehard Notre Dame fans. Um, and the brothers and the dad, like, they all have a particular job kind of following the, the father, um, but, the, but Rudy, man, he's got like dreams and aspirations. He's like, I want to go to college, but not just go to college. I am going to make my way onto the Notre Dame football team. And his whole family thinks he's delusional. They think he's nuts. They don't think he can do it. Um, but he does, through great effort and determination, he makes it onto like the practice squad. So basically, like day after day, he just gets, you know, just like kicked in the face and pummeled to death, basically, um, as part of this, you know, scout team that would go out there. But each week, he held out hope that as the list would be posted from the coach of who was dressing that week, who was going to get to run out of the tunnel, who was going to get to run out in the field and see touchdown Jesus and all the things, right? Like, he would look at that list, and week after week, he had this moment of hope, like, maybe my name will be on there, and then he would see that it wasn't, and it would lead to dejection. But he just kept being determined, determined, and yet there does come a point, and he's in this conversation with this man who keeps the grounds of all the stadium, and he's having this conversation, and the man notices that he's just so dejected. And he's like, 
what's up? Like, what's going on? And he begins to say, I just, I just wanted so badly, like for my dad and my brothers to see me run out of that tunnel. I wanted so badly to prove. He's like, prove what? The guy says to him. And there's this line. He says, I wanted to run out of that tunnel to prove that I was somebody. Friends, the reality of the human condition is we are all looking for ways to justify ourselves. Whether it's running out of a tunnel and achieving our hopes and dreams and aspirations, or if it's a certain amount of wealth, or it's a certain relationship, or it's getting certain grades, or looking a certain way, getting a career, whatever it is, they're not bad things. But that over-desire for that, the rich man, Jesus says, he's going to tell us in a moment, he got his good things in this life. The closest the rich man got to heaven was here on earth. And sure, maybe he had a good run. Who knows? Maybe he lived 80-some years, 90 years, 100 years, I don't know. But in the scheme of eternity, it's like, man, is that all this was about? And so it forces us, as we get into this next section, to consider, what's your name? What's your and my identity? Do we see that God is our helper Are we resting in that reality and the grace of God? Are we trying to prove that we're somebody? Friends, it will lead to exhaustion, and it will ultimately take us on a trajectory that is away from the presence of God, which is what the Scriptures refer to as hell. It's described here. It's The word Hades is used, and there's a a chasm that is spoken of. So look back with me at verses 23 to 28. This is Jesus setting it up and saying, if you don't know who you are, if you're trying to prove yourself apart from me, All right, this is where the story goes. And out of love, remember this, Jesus is telling us this out of love. And so as we look at this, like look at verse 23, it says, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and he saw Lazarus at his side. And so I think we feel this, all right? I'm guessing you feel this. It's like, this is a hard thing to talk about. Right? So when we're like, hey, let's come to church this morning and let's talk about hell, it's like, uh, okay, really? Like, is this a good thing to talk about? Like, how do we reconcile a loving God and yet the reality of hell and people being in hell, like, forever? The way that it's described here is torment. Like, how are we to think about those things? And I think at one level, one of the things that would, would be helpful is just to get out of our minds for a moment some of the imagery, all right, that perhaps you have in your mind, and we'll get to this in more detail in a few moments, but if you're like, that you got this picture of like God laughing and God thinking this, you know, just sort of like bellowing out and sort of like as people are trying to climb their way up out of this pit and he's like, ah, too late. Like that is not what this is communicating. But let's recognize it's a difficult doctrine, but it is, friends, it is a needed doctrine for actually going to understand the love of God. But some of the difficulty, I ran across this quote in my reading this week from Charles Darwin. I thought, this is, I think, what a lot of us feel. He says, I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this, he says, would include my father, my brother, and almost all of my friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. And maybe you're here this morning and you're like, hey, I wouldn't quite say it that way, but, but you've 
you feel it, right? And I'm not pretending to get up here this morning and just give you a fully exhaustive teaching on this. You'll have no more questions about this topic. But I think there's some really key things in this text. And so we'll kind of go through these rather quickly. But let's pay attention to a few things that are said. For one, the rich man calls out and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, which tells us at one level, hell is filled not only with irreligious people, but with religious people. Like it's possible, all right? And it's likely that this man, all right, because he's saying Father Abraham would have known the Jewish faith and the scriptures. He would have gone to synagogue. He would have gone to the temple. He would have participated in the right feasts and festivals and sacrifices and all of that. Like it's possible to do all the religious things and yet at the end of the day be lost. It's possible to go through all of that and at the end of the day, we have not surrendered and found our name in Christ, but rather we've tried to make a name for ourselves even through religious activity. Oh, look at me. I go to church. I despise these people who don't do that, or I participate in this, or I serve, or I give. Those are not bad things. Like, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. But if there's any part of you that's here thinking God is going to love you more, you have missed it. And so hell is actually filled with religious people. This man was religiously lost. As I mentioned a moment ago, though, hell also, it is no laughing matter. There's no aspect of this where God is thinking and looking at this or Jesus is telling this story and thinking, you know, that there's some level of of joy that he's getting from this. Look at this language. But Abraham said, like, look how Jesus has Abraham talk to this man. Child. Do you hear the compassion? He's like, my child. This time next week, we're going to gather for Palm Sunday, and we're going to look at the triumphal entry of Jesus, and we will also see after that happens that Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem, the compassionate heart of God, a God that Peter would tell us in his letter, like, is long-suffering and patient so that more might be saved. And so there's this compassion. He says, child, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, and so there's compassion, but there's this conviction. There's, there's this willingness to challenge and say, you made it all about you acquiring your good things. And so you had it. And Lazarus had his bad things, all right? But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And so hell is filled with religious people. Hell is no laughing matter. And as we see here, hell also, friends, it's helpful to think about this, is it actually starts here, and it continues forever. I'll read a quote in a moment from C.S. Lewis that's remarkably helpful in this. In fact, there's a couple of uh, resources in the sermon notes that you can get online, a link to The Reason for God by Tim Keller and a book by Mark Clark called The Problem of God. Both have very helpful chapters on this topic of hell and the afterlife and judgment and all of those things. Lots of helpful interaction around this particular text even that we're looking at. And one of the things that scholars pick up on is that there is this idea as we talk about hell, and it says here, notice his language, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. It's a picture of a man who's still in denial. He's still delusional. He still thinks Lazarus is there to do his bidding. Not to mention the fact that this one, this poor man who had sores all over his body, who was longing for the dirty bread to be tossed his way, right? This rich man apparently knew and had seen Lazarus enough to actually know his name. He calls him Lazarus here. And so it raises the question for us even, like, do you and I actually have eyes to see all that we've been given and how we're to steward that 
for the good of our neighbor? That is certainly a question that this parable Jesus is asking us to consider. But there's also, as we look back at it, he is looking at Lazarus still as somebody there to serve him that's beneath him. He's thinking, I can send Lazarus on an errand to go dip his finger in some cool water and place it on my tongue. There's no repentance. There's no helpful, healthy perspective on his lostness and his brokenness. He literally is operating with the story still about me. Hey, that guy Lazarus, I'm in anguish, I'm in pain. Hey, how about you send him over here? Unless we critique the rich man too much, realize that that's at play in my heart and in your heart. This way we make the story about us. Lewis commenting on this says this, here's the reality. Hell then begins so often here and now. And we have an opportunity still now to repent of our selfishness and our ways before it actually is too late. He says this, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But at this point, you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. The rich man never saw it and continues to not see it. It was not nipped in the bud. And so it started while he was here on earth where he knew the man's name and yet allowed there to be a chasm separated by a gate. He continued to live for himself, which leads us to the next point. That hell is this ultimately showcases, all right, like our human freedom and what that actually leads to. Hell is actually freely chosen. We tend, again, to think like God is like, ha-ha, no, you can't come in, right? Now, the imagery that we'll need to see, and C.S. Lewis, again, will be helpful here, is that hell, the doors are locked from the inside. So he, he says this, all right? Then I beg you, Father, to send him, all right, send him Lazarus. He's like, well, if you won't come and bring me water, well, maybe Lazarus. So he's still operating with the, hey, this guy's here to, to help me out. I have five brothers. So he may warn them, lest they also come into the place of torment. And so, again, maybe he has some level of concern, but scholars, commentaries on this have noticed over the, really, over the, the decades, over the centuries, what's missing in this, right? As you ask yourself, did you notice what's missing? There's no repentance. There's no asking. The man actually never asks, hey, can I get out? He's just operating as if somehow he has some level of authority and autonomy and to do this. And he's so delusional. And what started on earth has carried now into hell. And he's continuing to sin in hell. Sometimes people are like, how can we be punished forever? We sometimes believe this notion somehow incorrectly that like people stop sinning in hell. No, it's the reality is it goes on forever. And this man is continuing that. He's not asking to be let out. This is why Lewis would say this, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God. It's a surrender to God and his will. Or those to whom God in the end says, 
thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. And without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Lewis writes, I believe that the damned are successful rebels until the end. They enjoy their horrible freedom, which they actually have demanded. And I think you see that in this text. The man's not asking to get out. He is actually where he, as weird as it sounds, wanted to be. I want to do what I want to do. And so now, as G.K. Chesterton said, it, it lines up with this. Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. Okay, your will be done. And lastly, where this leads then, I think one other point is we talk about the fire and you talk about the flames and we see that in the text. Are we to actually understand then that like this is a torment and torture that is literal hellfire and brimstone, right? And when we read this, the reality is, listen, it's a parable. It's a story. I don't think it's meant to be pressed for all of those details, but as we think about fire, all right, so you think about that, maybe you, you have a campfire and you put the logs in there and they, you know, you're somebody who actually can get it started, unlike me, who's like, you know, three Duraflame starter logs later. I'm like, I still can't get this to go. But if, if you really are good and you can put this thing together, right, you will see that fire. And eventually what begins to happen? There's this disintegration that begins to take place. And ultimately, that's what Jesus is communicating. He says, I'm in anguish in this flame. The rich man says, there's a disintegration. It's this crumbling of everything that he'd ever known. His identity was built on what? On his riches, on his wealth, on his power, on other people doing his bidding. And he lived for self. And so hell then is just this ongoing forever. As Tim Keller says in The Reason for God, hell then is the trajectory of a soul uh, living a self-absorbed, self-centered life, going on and on forever. In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. It's that disintegration for forever. Now, I did tell you at the beginning of this, as we get in this last section, there is a heaviness, and I'm guessing you feel that, right? It's not to be flippant with this, to make light of this. But I, I really genuinely do believe that if we understand what's in this next section and helps us make sense of the totality of this parable, we would actually come to an understanding that, of the love that God has for us. And so to ask ourselves this question, like, what is it that we actually need? Like, if we're going to make sense of this, if we're going to even take what we're hearing in this, like, how do we leave not dejected and despair, all right? Is this meant to, like, lead us to a place of fear? That's part of what Jesus is, is getting at when, when, you know, when the rich man says, hey, tell my, you know, send Lazarus to tell my brothers. Well, friends, fear will have a short-term impact, and it can even be powerful in the moment. Like, if the if Lazarus had really shown up to his brothers and said, oh, hey, just so you know, your brother, they're like, which one? The rich man, the purple guy? Yeah, yeah, that guy. Like, he is in torment right now. The rich man is operating with a mindset like, hey, you can just, you know, induce this fear. That will change. But it doesn't change the structures of the heart. I remember some years ago uh, driving down the road and seeing this church, you know, sign, one of the marquee signs that tend to have things that I 
kind of want to swerve my car at and run over um, kind, of, kind of signs sometimes, right? Just me with rage issues. Anyway, okay, so um, and in, in this moment, seeing this, this sign, and probably well-intentioned, I was trying to assume the best, but it said, you know, read your Bible. It will scare the hell out of you. And it's like, really? Is, is, like, is that what we're, we're going for? Is just like this fear? Is that, what, is that what we're trying to do? And this text reminds us, listen, yeah, there's a heaviness, there's a weightiness, but Jesus isn't telling this story to scare the hell out of us. Jesus is actually telling this story so that we would understand the love that God has for us, that that might more like impact us in a new and fresh way. So he tells us in verses 29 to 31, he showcases us the, the cost of love. So look back with me at these particular verses. If you've got that in front of you, 29 to 31, it says, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Again, I said, so often what we run up against, and it's not just people out there. I think we ask these questions. We have a hard time reconciling because we're like, I believe in a God of love. And one of the more helpful comments in the chapter on hell and the reason for God, there's this question about like, hey, let's talk for a moment. You're talking with people that have different worldviews, that believe in different religions, right? Like, what did it cost your God to show love, to show mercy, right? Even you think about the, the creation account, like every single creation account of all different myths and religions and all these things really are birthed out of violence and of terror and of fear. But the Christian story is birth, the creation is out of the overflow of God's love that exists between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, in which he creates this whole magnificent world. And he places Adam and Eve and says, you're my image bearers, made in the image and likeness of God. And that's still our story. So even that we see our God, how loving and kind he is. And so, yeah, do I believe in a God of love? I do. But, but not in a way that is sentimental but in a way that we see is sacrificial. Like if we actually understand what is happening here in these last few verses, we will understand what Jesus had to do. Because what is being, what the point that's being driven at here is when it says, hey, will you, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Do you notice that word? Let them hear them. You've got to actually hear what they were talking about. You've got to take that in. You've actually got to understand it, all right? And he's like, no, 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 Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Give the big sign. Give the miracle. And we're going to celebrate the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. We're obviously not anti that, but what this is saying, what Jesus, as he's telling this parable, knowing that he will die and that he will rise again. And then Luke, as he's recording this, when it speaks of you know, rising, he's actually using a word that's connected to the resurrection account later in the story of Luke. So he has in mind Jesus' resurrection. And yet, Jesus says, you might see the big miraculous sign. You might see somebody come back from the dead, that there might be this resurrection. And that in and of itself, unless you are hearing Moses and the prophets, your heart will never sing and rejoice over that. You'll still live in fear. You'll still think, oh my gosh, this person came back from the dead. Like I better like shape up. You and I have to hear. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise 
from the dead. It's what we're going to be looking at in this. You want to know Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets? They speak of the fact that we've got no way to atone for our sins. We've got no way. We deserve hell, every last one of us. We deserve to be separated from God. We have chosen the way of self rather than surrendering. That's our story. That's not just the rich man in the story. That's all of our stories. And yet God in his kindness, what has been communicated through Moses, through the law, through the prophets, is that one day, right, God is going to send a servant to suffer in our place. This is why the prophet Isaiah all right, would write this in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. What Jesus is saying is like, are you paying attention to that? Not just the big and the miraculous, but are you paying attention to the fact that God was going to have to send them? Moses and the prophets spoke of. That's what they're telling the story. You want to know what the story of the Bible is? It's the story of Jesus being sent on a rescue mission to get us back. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. The joy of getting you and I back. That's what this story is about, for the Father's glory and for our joy. And so when Jesus says this, he's like, yeah, we could have the big miracle and it's needed, but listen, if you don't understand why I had to come and die, if you don't understand what this is all about, if you don't understand why Jesus on the cross quotes Psalm 22 and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? If we read the further context of Psalm 22, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You know what this is? This is hell, This is actual, literal hell, separated from God the Father. Jesus in that moment. Want to know why hell is such a big deal? If you and I don't understand the doctrine of hell, we will not understand what Jesus went through to get us back. He went through hell. He was forsaken by the Father. He died in our place. The wrath of God poured out on him, separated from all the perfection and the unity and the beautiful relationship he'd ever known. So that what? You and I as rebellious, self-seeking, selfish sinners could actually get into the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. And if you don't have a hell, all you've got is a sentimental God that's like, oh, I love you. We've got a sacrificial God. We got a God, a father who sends his son who dies in our place. It's not this sentimental nonsense. It's actual Jesus, the God-man, died for you. He endured hell for you and for me. This is the story that we get to tell. This is what Holy Week is about as we get ready to enter into that in a week or so. And as we look ahead, we got Good Friday. Without it, there's no Easter. Like we need both of those things. And so the sacrificial, friends, is far greater than the sentimental. When you understand that Jesus went through hell, It's not that we're glad that there's a hell in the sense of this punishment, but it it causes our heart to rejoice because we're like, Jesus endured that for us. So let me pray for us and ask the Holy Spirit, just lead us in this time that we might repent of our selfishness. We might remember the beauty and the wonder of what Jesus endured. We're gonna rejoice together through song, through communion as we continue in our service. But let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for your kindness and your mercy toward us. Jesus, thank you that you endured hell on our behalf, that you descended into hell. And that three days later, you rose again. You conquered Satan's sin and death. We thank you that you have made us new creations. We thank you that we have a name. We have names that are written in the book of life. We are your sons and your daughters through no effort of our own. May we rest in that. May we rejoice in that. God, I pray for any who do not know that reality. I pray that today would be a day that they would trust in your finished work. Lord, continue to rescue. In your kindness, lead us into repentance. In the places where even as Christians, we we still operate with almost hellish behavior, where we just have this groaning, this mumbling, this, this complaining, Would you root that out? Would you kill that in us and replace it with a new affection for you and your purposes and your kingdom? May we see how loved we are by looking at what Jesus endured on the cross. And so God, would you get your glory as we continue to worship? And may we experience just a deep and abiding joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.